Okay, well, welcome back, folks, to another episode of Murphy's Law Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Chris Murphy, and joining me is Kevin Smith, my co-host. Hey, Kevin. Howdy, Chris. How are you? I am doing fantastic. How about you? I am doing well, too. I am just off the road and uh, about to get back on it, so running and gunning. Good. Glad to have you back. Uh, Folks, I know we said we were going to put this out. Uh, once a week, uh, you know, life gets in the way sometimes and uh, schedules and, and personal work commitments uh, get in the way, but here we are. Okay, so before we move on with this episode, though, I want to just do a quick rehash um, of, of our last episode uh, in which we went over the Declaration of Independence and the importance of it and, uh, and how it all became to be so. And we're going to follow this, that episode up with the discussion of the U.S. Constitution, which we're going to do today. Before we get into that, we're going to mention our two sponsors. That's how we fund this show, is through our sponsors. Uh, let's go first with jumpstartcoffeeco.com. Jumpstart Coffee has two main mission goals. Those are to make great taste in coffee and support a great cause. The cause that they support is the Navy SEAL Foundation. They donate 50% of their profits to the Navy SEAL Foundation. And if you go check out the website at jumpstartcoffeeco.com and use code FLAW10 on checkout for 10% off your order. And then we have Dragoon Unlimited, which is an outdoor adventure gear company that really strives to bring rugged and reliable gear to all of y'all at a fair price. And additionally, they are really committed to being a different kind of company and, and bringing back to the community. They give 5% of all their gross sales to veterans' causes uh, around the nation. Awesome. Two great companies, two great causes. Glad to have them. Oh, and I forgot to uh, mention their promo code, which is 10Dragoon22 at checkout on Amazon or on their website for an additional 10% off of all their gear. Kevin, just so people don't confuse that with Dragon. Spell, That's right. Spell Dragoon for Dragoon, us. Dragoon, D-R-A-G-O-O-N. Okay, good. Go check out those websites, folks. Uh, it helps us. Uh, it helps those causes, and it helps those, uh, those companies. Okay, so last time, as mentioned, we talked about the Declaration of Independence, um, the timeline we're going to be talking about in this podcast is from 1775 all the way up to 1789. And those are going to cover the American Revolutionary War, the Declaration of Independence, which we talked about, obviously. Uh, but we're going to talk about the Articles of Confederation, uh, some of the events that happened in between that and the signing of the Constitution. And then we're going to jump into you know, the uh, Constitution, talk about several articles in it. And if we get time, uh, we'll go over the uh, First to Tenth Amendments. But yeah, let's just jump into it, Kevin. Um, The Articles of Confederation. What happened after the Declaration of Independence? So you got all these colonies said, hey, we're independent now. We're going to govern ourselves. A lot of people might think 1776, when that was done, we had a new government. We had the U.S. Constitution. But that is, in fact, not true. The U.S. Constitution wasn't signed and ratified until uh, many years later. But there had to be a form of government from that period up until the Constitution. So jump into it. Help, help us help our audience understand what happened there. 
Well, I think it's really important to remember that this really had never been done on a large scale before. The idea of self-government uh, in a time of monarchs and kings and queens and warlords, the idea of self-government just did not exist. And so in a lot of ways, they're building a plane in flight. We've heard that analogy before. Yep. And so heavily influenced by people like John Locke that we talked about last week, uh, the idea of self-rule and liberty, the idea of limited government was foremost in their mind. But keep in mind, we didn't even have uh, we really didn't have a government. We had a Continental Congress during the War for Independence. And it's not until early 1780, 1783 or so that we start thinking, hey, we might actually pull this off and we need to have a government. It's easy to get people to get to come together for a common cause when that common cause is survival. Mm -hmm. And so for the first seven years, it was survival. So people were, were, you know, we saw that after 9-11 where people were very willing to roll up their sleeves and say, whatever it takes, boss. 1783, the war's over. And now, you know, we, nobody has that common cause anymore. And so they come up with the Articles of Confederation. Again, very uh, heavily influenced by their previous experience. Sure. And I think one of the big things, too, that they were very cognizant of they just spent a number of years fighting a war and trying to establish themselves as an independent nation. And so one of the things they were very sure of was that they're not going to have a king. Is that fair to say? I think they were very sure they didn't want to have a king like King George. Well, fair. I, I think yep. there, was, there was even a, a movement to get George Washington to, to be the king, to use the army he'd put together and be the king. Okay, and, yeah. And he chose not to. He chose to, he said, his really own requirement, he, he wanted to go back and live the rest of his life as a private citizen. He, the only thing he asked from the Continental Congress is that he found, they found a way to pay his soldiers. Okay, yeah. Hmm. But going, uh, Chris, but going to what you said about uh, they did not want a king, it's very evident in the Articles of Confederation. Uh, there. There's really nothing more than a codified version and expanded version of the Continental Congress in the Articles of Confederation. Uh, there is no executive branch. There is no, uh, there's no purview for a, for a president. There's no judiciary at the federal level. There's no way to adjudicate um, grievances between the states. And so all this is, I've heard it described as a is a, a very virtuous league of friendship, and it relied on the virtue of man and their governments and their states to be uh, to be virtuous and do the right thing. All right. So, so with the Declaration of Independence being in 1776, and you know the Constitution not being signed to 1789, I mean, so what did exist between all those periods? Uh, 1783, the Articles of Confederation. Um, how how they come to be? Um, what was you know who who led that effort? I think uh, there's recognition that uh, they're, they're members of the, con the original Continental Congress, really, who led it. I think there's a recognition from the very beginning that now that we've pulled off this thing called the United States, we need to have some framework by which we operate. And so you'll see many of the same themes and messages that ultimately end up in the Constitution of the United States, in the Articles of Confederation, the idea of state sovereignty. 
I think it's really difficult for those of us in the United States now to understand how people saw themselves in the United States. Their nation, their country, their their land was that state of Virginia, was the state of Georgia, Delaware, Rhode Island. Um, you even have a you even have a, a border war going on between Connecticut and Rhode Island in that period uh, over over a border dispute. So they see themselves as independent sovereign states with citizens of that state. Yeah, that's interesting. And you know, do you have any idea how they how they um, established those borders at that time? No, I'm sure King George had something to do with that, and it had to do. And there were some dis, there were some disputes as as you went further west. If you look at some of the original maps, uh, the the north south boundaries just kind of go straight west and yeah. then trail off. But you know, there there are obviously some very big disputes about where those boundaries are, how those people in those boundaries are represented. Uh, how that translates to representation in the Congress now, the Congress put together with the Articles of Confederation. Sure, and I guess with that West, especially with that westward expansion, um, you know, these weren't uninhabited lands. I mean, um, the Iroquois, other uh, other tribal nations, and, and Native Indians were in those areas, right? And and somebody had to establish. And I believe Thomas and Thomas Jefferson kind of established what the um, the state acreage was going to look like, and I, I can't remember the details for sure, but I think he he uh, established each state towards the west. and And do you know how many w- there were? Like I think sixteen extra additional states. I think they were going to add. Well, we're probably going to mess this up here. But yeah, you would get me lying. Yeah, but it, but he, I think they looked at um, you know. Uh, a certain geographic mapping structure and establishing those states that would eventually become part of the Union. But there was some trouble in that, too, that I don't know if the Articles of Confederation dealt with, which is why we also ended up with the Constitution, is that as you as these populations moved into these new states or these new areas, there was agreements that had to be made with the people that already lived there. There had to be agreements with regards to uh, land ownership in those areas. Uh, there had to be rules with, um, you know, trade and 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 um, you know, commerce between those all those different states, which I don't know. And, and correct me if, if I'm wrong, but those weren't in the Articles of Confederation, were they? No, they weren't. And then to put a little finer head on it, it's not just the American Indians are out there. You have the French that have settled most of the what we know as the Mississippi River Valley now. You have the uh, Canadians north. In fact, the Canadians were invited to join the United States in the Articles of Confederation. But again, going back to the states saw themselves as sovereign nations. Each individual state was responsible for making those uh, decisions about how they would how they would interact with foreign powers, how they would legislate and uh, use their judiciary within their states. You know, the, the best way to, again, I think the best way to describe it is the way the European Union is now. A French court does not have uh, jurisdiction in ger- matters of Germany, right? So they have a, they have a higher court to, to uh, deal with those things. It's very similar. It, when you think of your nation, your country, you're thinking about Virginia or Georgia or 
Rhode Island. And so you can imagine having 9, 12, 13 different states having 9, 12, 13 different uh, treaties with, for example, the French right. as, they, as they continue to move west. You also have Indian tribes that fought with us and against us that are still sitting there, right? And so you have to deal with that and that kind of compensation. You have a, the whole Continental Army that really didn't get paid for years on the promise of some sort of payment. And that comes in the form, in many cases, of land grants to those soldiers. Sure. I guess that was a period of, uh, you know, the modern-day terminology for, um, you know, organizational change or maybe new companies or whatever it is. But and I, and I hope I don't mess it up here, but forming, storming, norming, performing. And, and it's a, you know, something that refers to the establishment of some new um, um, way of doing things that, yeah, obviously you go through a period that you're trying to form it. And then the, the period of storming where there's a whole bunch of chaos and, and people are trying to figure out what they're doing. And, and, and until, you know, you get into that norming phase where, you know, okay, we're, we're, we're getting in our, our flow here. We're starting to establish some rules and structure. And then when you get into performing, right? And I, I don't, don't know if our performing started happening uh, until much later in years. But this whole period from, you know, the Declaration of Independence, and I'm going to say even up to uh, the signing of the U.S. Constitution, was probably more of a forming stage, I'm not going to say they were performing. I'm not going to say they were, well, there's probably some storming in there too because there's a lot of, you know, how, how do we deal with all these things we're talking about, like land and payment of soldiers. Um, and what do you do with the 30% of Americans now who were loyal to the crown throughout the whole struggle, right? Do they lose their land? Are they treated as equals? Do they have to go back to England? There's all these things going on. So in a way, in 18 or 1783... We get the plane off the ground, but we're not really even sure how to drive it. Uh, we're still reading the, the flight manual, you know, a thousand feet in the air. And it becomes very, very evident we don't have a president. We don't have an executive that can go talk to a king or another head of state from a, a foreign power that can speak on our behalf as a whole. We don't have a judiciary branch. And so we look around. And we have no way to adjudicate disputes between the states. And I think that leads, uh, we owe you know, millions of dollars to the European powers who were um, antagonistic towards Britain that helped us you know, fund our army, fund our navy to fight Britain. And now we have no way to get that money from them, or we have no way to get that money back to them. Uh, because even though the Congress can ask the states to pay their taxes, the states are sovereign, completely right. sovereign. Yeah. And the states can say no, and in most cases, they did. Right. Okay, so, so during that period, the, you know, the Articles of Confederation were somewhat guiding you know, how everybody acted as independent states in this, new, um, in this new republic. But they weren't working. And um, so what were some of the events that kind of led us, you know, um, led us into needing to have a, another governing document, which ended up being the U.S. Constitution. But there had to be a, a number of events that kind of led us to the conclusion that we, we need to do something different here. Yeah, I think there's, in my mind, there's kind of two of them. One is, one is a direct uh, result of the Paris Treaty in 1783, 
where the French are completely left out of it. I mean, we would not have won the war if it had not have been for the French and their assistance. And the French get no voice in that treaty. They get no remuneration. They get no compensation from Britain in that. This treaty signed, and France is completely left out of that peace accord. And oh, by the way, they still shared the continent with us because they are, it's, it's all France, yeah. west of us. Uh, Louisville, Kentucky, St. Louis, right? You can go down the list of French settlements. So we realize that we don't have the ability to really conduct good foreign policy. And that typically comes at the hand of the now president. And then we realize that we cannot raise taxes for the things that we need to do as a country. And that's most evident in Shays' Rebellion, where you have a, a well, Shay is the leader, but you have a group of farmers that say, I'm not going to pay my taxes. And there's nothing the federal government can do about it. But I think they were, weren't they also at risk of losing their land if they weren't going to pay taxes? Well, uh, that, right, of course. Yeah. And, and it turns into an armed, it really turns into an armed conflict of them. You know, we see it. We've seen it with the uh, Bureau of Land Management protests in the last couple of years. We've seen different things where landowners, that point of sword from the government, say, pay your taxes or lose your land. Same thing was going on then. Sure. But there was no, you know, the, the Army and the Navy were appointed two years at a time. There's no federal law enforcement. There's no federal judiciary. There's no way to, for Washington, D.C. to do anything other than look at them and ask the state where that's going on to take care of it. Yeah, so all, I guess all these, all these founders had, had something on their hands they had to deal with, right? Um, they had this rebellion. They had a, a lot of unrest. They had debt. Um, and they, you know, I guess that's the point of the U.S. Constitution. They need to they needed to come up with a way to deal with all this. Yeah, and to stay with that plane analogy, I think we got the plane in the air and looked around and said, hey, now we need to figure out how to land it. And the That's right. Constitution kind of helped us get it back on the ground. Okay, good. Well, I think that's probably a good uh, part to jump off here and, and um, get into the U.S. Constitution. I'm just going to read the first uh, paragraph of the Constitution. Um because I think it is really important. It says, We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish the Constitution for the United States of America. So I think that kind of deals with everything we just spoke of. Yeah, and I Almost. think yeah, I always will try to look at the words that are not emphasized. So there's that part where it says a more perfect union. Remember, there's never been a union before the United States. And so they've already taken a run at it for about four years and said, hmm, I mean, this is good, but let's make it more perfect. So let's form a more perfect union. Right. And, and, that, and that didn't stop then. That's continuing today. Absolutely. You know, always trying to, trying to do better. Continuous improvement, right? Right. Um, the the one thing you hear a lot of people say, you know, is we the people. Before we move off of that, like, I mean, what does that? I know what it means to me. Um, what what does we the people mean to you? Well, again, I think you know. I'm just going to stay with my theme of liberty, and this this idea comes from John Locke and his 
peers of, of the late 1600s, the idea that government is better the more local it is. Uh, we should take care of things, and I'm paraphrasing his ideas, but we should take care of things in our own home and then try to take care of things locally and then at the state level and then ultimately when the Constitution is written at the federal level. Um, so when I say we the people, I don't really think about 535 people in Washington, D.C. getting together and voting on things. When I say we the people, I think of me and my family and you sitting across the table and our friends to say, hey, what do we need to take care of? Before we get, ever go ask anybody else, the Democratic Party had a, a big sign a couple of years ago at one of their conventions that said, government is the only thing we all have in common. And that concept is so foreign, would have been so foreign to the, the founding fathers as to you know, it'd be look, like looking at a fungo bat. It means nothing. Mm -hmm. They saw our commonalities in our friendships and our faith, uh, in the activities and social things that we did together. And only when those organizations and networks failed to address the problem should we start going to look at government. And now we're talking local government and county government and state government. And so we the people means more than just, you know, we're all going to get 330 million of us are going to collectively get together and come up with the right answer. I would submit to you that it means that 330 million of us are going to get together and make the right answer for where we live and who we live with. And what looks right in Texas may not look right in California, and it may not look right in South Dakota or Rhode Island. That's a, that's a good summary. I, I've, I feel the same way about it, too, because, you know, we'll talk a little bit about how the government is supposed to represent the people. But for me, we the people, there's some people say that that's, uh, you know, you get to vote and you get to vote, you know, once every two years for your House of Representatives or, or um, a senator or whoever it is, right? Your county judge, yada, yada. And, and that is true. You get to do that. And you as a people get to decide who you want as a representative. But I don't think it ends and begins every two years. We the people is, is expressing your dissatisfaction, um, supporting your community. Um, it may be running for a school board, attending the school board meeting. It may be you know, voicing your opinion at a, at a local uh, community event. You know? So I think we, we the people, when, when you're talking about self-government, uh, you need to be involved. Right. This is not that voting to me is yes, it's part of it, but it's not good enough. There's more to it than just voting. It's just being active and uh, look, show, showing dissent in, in what happens with your elected officials is also important. They are elected to represent you, and when I say you, not you individually, but you as uh, coll collectively and individually. And if they're not doing that, they need to be held to account. Yeah, I think the biggest lie that we've ever bought into is the idea that, you know, your only chance for input is at the ballot box and that you don't talk politics uh, at the at the dinner table. I would tell you that the opposite is true. We should have constant engagement. We should be communicating with our elected officials at all levels about the things that we are happy with and, most importantly, the things we're not happy with. Imagine... You know, would we really care who the president was, regardless of party, 
if they weren't in our business all the time. Right. And so the answer is no. Yeah, I wouldn't. And so, and that's what our founding fathers envisioned is a very unobtrusive federal government that got together for very limited cases. So when you think of government, I think of Austin, Texas, the capital of Texas, not Washington, D.C. You know, it's interesting that you brought up the federal government and a limited government because between the, the Declaration of Independence and up until the U.S. Constitution was signed, I think that was a big part of the conflict in in um, terms of um, you know coming to an agreement was that the individual states didn't want a, a an overbearing federal power. Uh, they wanted to be governed you know locally by themselves in their local state, right? Am, am I wrong on that? No, absolutely. No? Yeah. And, I, and I think you see this. You even see this. You see it in the Articles of Confederation, but you see it throughout the. Constitution, you know, article. Uh, I think it's Article Four, Section Four. I could be off, but it talks about all states are sovereign, right? The federal government guarantees a sovereign state of government. You see the Ninth and the Tenth Amendment. We talk a lot about the Tenth Amendment that says all things not uh, not given to the federal government as a power or prohibited to the state governments is the sole responsibility of the state or the people. We don't talk much about the Ninth Amendment, and I'm paraphrasing, that says, hey, just because we didn't mention it in the Constitution doesn't mean you can do it. Uh, we listed a, we had a list of 17 enumerated powers, the only things the federal government is supposed to do. Two-thirds of those are national defense. The rest of those have to do with commonality of measurements and money and treaties and things like that. Um, think those are very very important because every time they get a chance to emphasize personal liberty state sovereignty and limited federal government they do in both the articles of confederation and then later in the u.s constitution yeah i'm good well let's look you pointed to a few articles of the uh, of the constitution so let's i mean let's hit those um article one you know from from my reading here what it deals with is is uh, the Congress and the legislative branch. Really, the first three sections here go over the separation of powers. And Article 1 talks about all the powers um, given to Congress, not just the powers, but how Congress is to be formed. Now, prior to this, um, there was also... Actually, let's, let's just talk about how it's formed. In Article 1, there, they, they do talk about Congress and the formation of Congress, and it talks about who can be a representative. It does talk about the House of Representatives. And um, it tells you that you get one seat for every 30,000 uh, people in the region, right? Right. You know, I, I, I don't want to gloss over that because that's, that's important. And, and um, going back to the Articles of Confederation, the House of Representatives in this regard, uh, you know, represent, representation by population, wasn't well established in the Articles of Confederation. They were just given one uh, one Senate seat per state, right? Right. Okay, so now with this, you know, and, and I guess more populous states f- probably felt like they weren't represented properly because they had more people versus the lower uh, populated states who had lesser people in it basically held the same power as the other states in terms of their voting power and, and things like that, right? Absolutely. But the flip side of that argument is equally compelling. 
if you're a small state, if you're Rhode Island, uh, you can have no vote if we do it simply by population because you will get run over by New York every time. Right. So I guess, you know, Article 1 kind of helps uh, helps deal with that. It basically gives you two kind of uh, houses in, in Congress, uh, the lower house and the upper house, and the upper house being the Senate. And they right now we have two senators per state. So regardless of population, everybody gets two senators. That's right. Um, the lower house then is represented by the population. And so one seat per 30,000 people. You know, you, you heard a lot of fuss, I guess, let's call it, um, over the last few years about the census because the census is done every... Uh, 10 years. But I guess this is where the census is really important. Okay, so the Constitution says the representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among several states, which may be included within this union, according to their respective numbers. And it says you add the whole number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years, and it excludes Indians who are not taxed, and it includes three-fifths of all other persons. I mean, why was that done that way? Well, I think it's really easy to say sexism, uh, racism, and I won't pretend that those things didn't exist back then, but we also, the world was different. Values were different back then. Taxes were based on people, the vote, and taxes were based on people that had skin in the game. The people that could own land were the ones that were taxed. They were also the ones that could vote. And so if you couldn't own land, couldn't own a business, not only were you not taxed, uh, you didn't get to vote. And so there's this idea of in order to, in order to have a say on how the collective, the collective whole was going to spend their money uh, or direct their wealth, you had to have skin in the game. And the skin of the came came in the form of taxes. Yep. You know, so there's some other things in here um, in Article One Two to talk about. You know, the the what what Congress is responsible for and how they're supposed to operate. And I don't know if we're going to touch on all that. I think uh, there's something brilliant. Yeah. What they, is it? I think there's something brilliant that they did, and we really messed it up with the 18th Amendment when we changed how we elect senators. There's a reason why it's two years and six years. And back then, our representatives and our senators were elected differently. Now they're both elected through popular vote. However, going back to this idea of accountability to the citizen, the House of Representatives was elected for two years by popular vote. They had to be very, very receptive and reactionary to the the desires and passions of their constitu constituency, or they would not have time for it all to blow over and get reelected. And so direct vote every two years. I mean, you have to pick up the phone and answer it when somebody calls. You have to mm -hmm. respond when somebody sends you a message, or you're not going to get reelected. So it's a very reactionary body. Uh, and it's brilliant. It should be. The Senate, on the other hand, is elected for six years. Again, brilliant by doing this because now whatever the passion issue of today is may blow over next year or two years from now and they have time to look at the bigger picture they have time to say let's let cooler heads prevail and let this thing develop they're also appointed by the state legislature 
so the people have a direct they have a direct vote to elect their state legislatures and that state the state legislature then selects the senators to go to washington dc and rep represent us and oh guess what if they're not representing this we can bring them back so if we have if we send a senator up there that is making deals with other states that are not benefiting our state or not benefiting the collective whole our state legislature has the ability to bring them back because oh by the way the people vote for them too yeah. and so it's a it's this brilliant balance of being very reactionary to the people yet also being able to look at the bigger picture and let cooler heads prevail a lot of times the analogy i think jefferson made the analogy that the house of representatives is like the hot tea and the saucer the senate is like the saucer at the below that the hot tea boils over into and it's the cooling it's the cooling saucer of democracy to let kind of cooler heads prevail good analogy the the other thing about the senate too yeah they're once every six years but they're um they're done in parts basically every two years there's a new part of the senate elected so that you get you know a third going out here a third going out there and a third going out there over the six years right so it kind of what it does is it tempers um emotions absolutely and that's the brilliance of it and it's it's rare it happens you'll have a senator die in office or resign for whatever reason but it's very very rare that you have two senators from the same state being elected the same year right so you always get you always have this three-year overlap so if you get a new senator you got the other guy that's been there at least three years that can sit down with him and say hey this is how we do business up here and this is how things are done like it okay uh anything else about article one jump in article two uh and then this kind of refers to the executive power you know it talks about how the president is going to be elected uh, things have changed over time uh you know from the original constitution but um anything to say about article two well, I think, yes, it's kind of conceptual, but one of the things that has happened over, I would say particularly the last half of the 20th, 20th century, the last 50, 70 years, is the executive has become almost a second legislative branch uh, because of their cabinet positions. We have all these cabinet positions, for example, that are not in the Constitution. I'll use the Department of Education as one. Whenever we have a, take any passion issue, that passion issue is usually not in the Constitution. The Constitution says, well, if it's not in here, then it's not the federal government's responsibility. But what we've done, for example, with education, is we have created a bureaucracy that reports to the president. That bureaucracy has the ability to make policies and regulations that have force of law. In other words, you can go to jail or you have to, you have to pay a fine if you don't follow them. And so we really have this fourth branch of government or we have a executive that's not doing executive things, they are legislating. It's hard to talk about the president without talking about the judiciary and the legislative branch, but all three of these were set in motion or created to be kind of in constant tension with, with each other so that one could not get too far over their skis and do something unconstitutional that one or both of the other branches would dial them back all of those branches were accountable to the people up until we let this bureaucracy really really get away from us and now we have bureaucrats you hear that term all the time who make laws or they make policies with the force of law 
that are not accountable to us. They are accountable to one man, the president. So how amazing would it be if, I mean, would you care who, I think we already said that, but would you care who the president was if they weren't in your business all the time? No, sir. So, you know, it's interesting. Um, yeah, so uh, those bureaucracies, you know, there's different departments in the cabinet, you know, to name a couple of other ones, you mentioned education, but then you have transportation, you have the EPA, you have, uh, what else is there? Um, alcohol, tobacco, firearms. Yeah, housing uh, department, housing. housing. You know, what about the executive uh, orders? It just seems to me like they're just bypassing the original framing of the Constitution with executive powers. And now I know every president does it. And to me, and this is just for me, I'm not suggesting I'm right, this just seems like an easy out when you haven't been able to work with Congress to to put in proper legislation. Yeah. Well, sure, yeah. And so executive orders really are in place. I'm not even sure. That, you know, constitutionally, there's not really a place that says you have the power of executive orders. It does say that you have the power to do things to keep the government going. And so those were things like, does the president need a presidential yacht to go across the ocean does the president need a airplane to fly across the ocean to do presidential things yeah absolutely go buy that it was the eos were supposed to be the things that were required to keep the president going now they are edicts they are you know it's really no different than mad king george it doesn't matter what side of the fence you're on that a president can say you know let it let it be done but it's not just the president's fault and it's not just these bureaucrats that work for the executive branch and i think that's what's really important to understand is that these agencies don't work for congress they work for the president through his cabinet congress is as much to blame for this as the president ever was because it's an easy out for them they don't have to they can say well i didn't vote for that they can say well i didn't have anything to do with that and the bureaucrats argument will be that well, that congressman doesn't have the subject matter expertise mm -hmm. to make, you know, laws about air pollution, for example. Sure. But that bureaucrat's not accountable. It's a win-win for a congressman. Congressman doesn't have to get blamed for anything and gets to take credit for everything. See that happening today, don't we? Um, okay, well, let's move on. Article 3 deals with the judicial power, the, the uh, judicial branch. Um I don't know if there's too much to mention about uh, Article 3, unless you had something to add, Kevin. No, just that I think, um, you know, the idea that the Supreme Court is the final arbitrator on all issues is not, I mean, we've bought into that, but I don't think that's what the Founding Fathers really intended. Again, going back to this, if you, and if we can get really deep into the Federalist and Anti-Federalist papers uh, down the road, but if you... If you look at what they intended, they intended us to make our own decisions and then make them local. And so the idea that if you don't get your way in Houston, Texas, that your next step is the Supreme Court, and I know it has to matriculate through the process, that's kind of a flawed mindset. Sure. You know, that the, the judiciary was really there to make interpretations on the Constitution as it was written and how it applied to the individual states or our foreign policy. Right. Okay, good. Uh, Article 4. Um, yeah, once again, I, I don't have much to say about this. I, I think you wanted to hit on Article 4. Section 4, the United States shall guarantee uh, to every state in this union a republican form of government and shall protect each of them against invasion and on 
application of the leg legislature or of the executive when the legislature cannot be con convened against domestic violence. So basically their, their job is to protect you against domestic violence and invasion. Right, and that, you know, that comes up a lot right now with the problems we're having on the southwest border. Um, is the federal government really doing one of its enumerated powers? And there's another part of that, and I'm not even going to quote it, it but um, it's in that same section where it talks about state sovereignty. And I think this is a theme we see over and over again, the idea of sovereignty of the states. That doesn't mean go do your own thing. It means we need to quit looking to Washington, D.C. for our solutions. We need to look to our right. we need to look to our state governments and our county governments and our local governments and our own families for our solutions. Right. And it's too easy to look to Washington D.C. for them. And when you look to Washington D.C., it's a binary solution. It's off or on. You either get it or you don't. And if you're on the side that doesn't get what they want, then what you're disenfranchised. Mm -hmm. Whatever word we're going to use this year for it. <laughs> Okay, good. Uh, Article 5, I think we, it is worth mentioning what's in Article 5. And really, um, Article 5 has to do with basically how to change the Constitution and how to make amendments and, and how to frame up a, a new way of governing. Isn't, it, isn't that right? Yeah, Chris, and I think, you know, I, I, neither one of us pretend to be uh, constitutional scholars Absolutely or not. experts. I think that's the beauty of it, though. It was written not for lawyers to interpret it. It was interpret. It was written for people like you and I and everybody listening to this to apply to their life and build a framework. I hear all the time people say, well, the Constitution doesn't have relevance because the Founding Fathers could not envision space travel. They couldn't envision the Internet. They couldn't envision, you know, automatic weapons. And I would say our, uh, Section 5 is one of the most brilliant sections in the whole Constitution because it acknowledges exactly that. And it gives us three ways to change the Constitution. We've done it. I think we're up to 29 or 30 amendments now. We've done it close to 20 times since it was ratified. We changed our mind on it once. We prohibited alcohol and then several years later changed our mind and made it legal again. So we can change it through uh, Congress. We can change it through the state legislatures, or we can just throw the Constitution out and get a, another constitutional convention together and rewrite this whole document. Yeah, those are good points. You know, you hear a lot in, in uh, politics today, you know, people don't get their way, so they want to say, let's just end the filibuster. You know, I, I, don't, I don't see that. I don't see that as a good solution. I think the filibuster is there for a reason. I mean, this is Article 5. It's there for a reason. It, it's to, to ensure... You are making good laws that have good representation amongst the states. And if you don't have those, maybe your law isn't that good, right? Well, or, yeah, or, and, and the margins are interesting too, right? So it's two-thirds in Congress. It's three-fourths of the state legislatures, and I'm not sure what it takes to get a constitutional convention, but probably three-fourths of them. And what it really says is we shouldn't be governing in the margins. We should not be governing on a 51% majority. If you can't get... 66% of the nation together or 75% of the nation together to make a dramatic change, and maybe we don't need to be making it. Yeah, exactly. Or maybe we need to think about it for another year or another 10 years. Yeah, I mean, many, many companies, individual companies, have this in their, in their bylaws and in their operating agreement. They have 
things that could be done, you know, first of all, they lay out the responsibilities of responsibilities of each member of the company. They say, hey, we can do these things with a simple majority, but if you want to change these things, you need a super majority, right? Which is generally almost the same thing, a 67% number, you know? So it's almost like this is a super majority clause in the Constitution that, that applies to many uh, individual operating companies. Right, yeah. so they say two-thirds and three-quarters, um, or you shouldn't do it. And people say, well, nothing would ever get done. But remember, that's what they were trying to that's create. The point. They yeah. were trying to create a federal government that did very little to intrude on the rights and the lives of the individual. And, and it's, it's funny that you say that, nothing will ever get done. And, and I think I agree with you. That's the point, is that you don't do stuff. And I think too often today, you know, I was listening to a podcast on the way over here that uh, the the discussion was how do we how do we get back to governing as a as a real strong functioning government? And, and the guy had mentioned that we we need a real strong liberal government. I'm actually going to argue that, and I say let's just go back to the Constitution the way it was written. Stop with these bureaucracies, dissolve them. If it, for that matter, I'm not saying all of them, but some of them can probably go away. Their powers need to be taken away. Let's go back to the Constitution. You know, a lot of these things were put in place where the you know Article Five was was meant to say stop changing things, right? Right. And and if you want to change them, you better have a overwhelming majority to change them. Well, it, that, absolutely, and I think again keeping. Just, I'm going to keep pounding this horse of liberty and making our own decisions. The, everything that gets done at the, at the federal level, it's punch. And by punch, I mean, where's the only place that you ever have punch? You have it at a, at a wedding. Graduation party? A graduate, well, Maybe. I'm not know. talking about trash can punch. I'm just talking <laughs> about punch. I'm talking about the yeah. ginger ale and some little marshmallows floating on top with some orange juice in it, right? Punch. And the reason that you serve punch at a wedding or a graduation party is it's the lowest common denominator that everybody will drink and no one will complain about. But you never find yourself outside of that venue driving around going, man, if I just had a cup of punch. Hmm. And so when you try to do legislation at the federal level, it's punch. What our founding fathers really wanted is a BYO kind of country. So that if you are in california you can drink wine and if you're in texas you can drink beer and if you're from kentucky you can drink bourbon if you are from utah you can drink non-alcoholic whatever and all of those align with your values and we're all together having what we want living our lives the way we want drinking the drink that we want and not drinking punch and trying not to swallow the little tiny marshmallows yeah good analogy when I was partying in high school, I used to bring the beer that nobody else drank. I used to drink Dominion Ale. And I brought that specifically because if I ever saw anybody drinking Dominion Ale, I knew who was stealing my beer. Exactly. See? Pro tip right there for you, <laughs> for you people out there. Um, okay. Um, Article 6 and 7 are relatively short. Uh, did you have anything you wanted to mention about Article 6 and 7, Kevin? No, not right off. I, I think, you know, the, the first three, or actually really the first five, are specifically addressing faults in the Articles of Confederation and trying to fix those. 
And then from there we start getting into, you know, how do we execute it? How do we actually make this thing work? We've, we've identified some shortcomings. Let's fix those. And now looking forward, how do we do things better or different? Again, going back to this more perfect union thing that has really been a theme of our nation since the very beginning. We didn't just sign it in 1789 and be done with it. We didn't just get our independence and say it's perfect. Every day, every week, every month, every year, we should be looking around and say, how can I make it more perfect? And that's what they were doing in those last, last couple of sections. Good. I like it. Okay, we, we kind of promised to keep these episodes to 30 minutes, and I know we went a little over time. Um, so we're going to cut it there. Next episode, we're going to be talking about the 1st to 10th Amendments of the Constitution, otherwise known as the Bill of Rights. And, uh, yeah, I guess we'll just take it up next time. Um, please check out our sponsors, jumpstartcoffeeco.com. And use code FLAW10 on checkout for 10% off your order. And then uh, DragoonUnlimited.com, and you can use 10Dragoon22 at checkout. The other thing I'll tell you about uh, Dragoon Unlimited, if you go look on their website, there's a little section where anybody listening to this can get a free constitution. So just go on there, send them your mailing address, and you'll have a free pocket constitution show up in your mailbox a few days later. Glad you mentioned that. I also want to uh, mention another uh, sponsor that we managed to pick up, and that is theflagshirt.com. If you haven't checked out theflagshirt.com, what they do is they have a bunch of different apparel, uh, hats and shirts, different things like that, you know, all bearing the American flag. I don't have a promo code, but I have um, a, a savings link that I'll put in the show notes. Just go on there, click on the link, and it'll bring you to the website, and you'll save $5 off your order. And that also helps out our show as well. So that's it, folks. That's it for today. Next show on the amendments 1 through 10 of the U.S. Constitution. And until next time, stay free.